a short message for fans of and listeners to the Cold War Vault. If you don't follow the updates on Facebook, and I understand if you don't, I've been teaching this semester, and it slowed down production on the show. I'd like to thank you all for being here for the return, and I would especially like to thank the Patreon supporters who have stuck around and continued to offer suggestions for future shows, all of which are now in the works. So, back to work, and on with the show. In the relatively modest bedroom of a relatively modest house on an estate known as Spring Hill in McLean, Virginia, it had finally happened, apparently. It was the end of the world. The Polish-born, hawkish national security advisor to U.S. President Carter, Zbigniew Brzezinski, lay asleep just before 3 a.m. on the 9th of November, 1979 asleep until a call came on the secure line beside the bed from his military assistant brigadier general William Odom, who then reported to the national security advisor as best he could the comings and goings of current military situations. The news wasn't good. Odom said that with a high degree of confidence 250 Soviet missiles had been launched against the United States. The vast array of early warning equipment deployed from the farthest reaches of the Arctic to outer space was simultaneously and independently confirming the launch. At that moment, President Carter was asleep in the White House residence, alone. First Lady Rosalind was in Thailand, and at the moment, with 250 missiles incoming and Soviet submarines surely lurking off the Atlantic coast, the time allotted by fate and circumstance to Jimmy Carter to respond to the attack was three to seven minutes. Brzezinski had a choice then, to immediately alert the president to a clear and present danger, or to wait for confirmation. To alert the president was to pass responsibility for action to the White House, as I suppose most Americans imagine should be the case. To wait for confirmation would be to run out the already vanishing remaining seconds on the doomsday clock. Whether his reason was fear, confidence, or intuition, Zbigniew Brzezinski told his assistant, William Odom, to stand fast, to hold, and wait for more confirmation. But Brzezinski was undoubtedly a hawk, and there was nothing in the fiber of his being that restrained his belief that the United States should be ready to hit back and hard. He asked for confirmation that the Strategic Air Command was airborne and on their way to the failsafe points. Still, he wanted to hold. Odom called back moments later with confirmation 
Now there were 2,200 Soviet nuclear missiles in the air, on their way to targets all over the United States, including the White House and, as bad luck would have it, McLean, Virginia. The timelines here, you have to understand, are compressed. These back-and-forth calls were happening in seconds, all still within those very, very few minutes required to wake President Carter and have him authorize a nuclear response. Brzezinski resolved to call the White House in 60 seconds, triggering a missile threat conference. Now there was no other choice to be made if the United States was to have any meaningful response to the onslaught of a Soviet surprise attack. In this last moment, a third call came from William Odom. Independent early warning systems weren't detecting any launches at all. The North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, didn't know why and didn't know how, but it was a false alarm. Brzezinski hung up. He sat alone in the dark. Later, it would be revealed that the attack had been a virtual one, resulting from a program being put into the computer at Cheyenne Mountain and run without anyone realizing it was a training simulation. But that night in the house in McLean, amidst the panicked calls and the fate of the country and the world apparently on the line, Zbigniew Brzezinski had decided not to wake his wife, Emily. His thought being simply, and correctly, that everyone would be dead in half an hour anyway. Total elapsed time of crisis. Eight minutes. This close call in 1979 is yet another chapter in the atrocity exhibition of the late Cold War, all too similar to other scenarios on both sides of the divide. Some are very famous, maybe too famous, like the tale of Stanislav Petrov. Others remained secret until only recently. So absurd the cause and so catastrophic the potential result is to be the destroyer of careers, they were kept cautiously under wraps. But let's take up the cause, shall we? Mishaps and missile men, this time on the Cold War Vault. There are many stories of mistakes and close calls in the nuclear-armed history of the Cold War. Some of them I've talked about down here in the vault before. One of the most famous near-disasters was the Goldsboro Crash. You can find that story and a few others in the episode The View from Ground Zero. 
The Union of Concerned Scientists reminds us that there are other types of potential close calls, like when an extremely depressed and extremely drunk U.S. President Richard Milhouse Nixon was coming to grips with his fate before his resignation after the exhausting national drama of the Watergate affair in 1974. Secretary of Defense James Schlesinger asked that the Joint Chiefs of Staff route any emergency order from the President through him first. Not entirely illegal, and never tested, but a moment when the highest nuclear authority was demonstrably not emotionally stable. As in all of these stories, it was another disaster that wasn't, but might have been. However, in the last few episodes, I've talked about a period in time of particularly acute danger, when the Soviets were on edge and the geopolitical situation seemed to move ever closer to nuclear war. From 1979 to at least 1984, it seems as if things were always one mistake away from having a very, very bad day. The Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the Olympics boycott, the ascension of Margaret Thatcher and the election of Ronald Reagan, and the recurrent leadership crisis in the Soviet Union as the geriatric heads of state repeatedly died. The Falklands War, the invasion of Grenada, the announcement of the potentially destabilizing Star Wars program, SDI, deployment of the nerve-wracking intermediate-range Pershing II's, the Korean airliner shootdown, and of course the major subject of the vault's last few episodes, the Autumn Forge exercises of 1983, culminating in the now-famous Abel Archer incident. But behind all of this was a chain of catastrophes very narrowly averted. Some secret for years, some exposed almost immediately, all of them prevented from spiraling out of control by the last layer of safety in the system, the human element. The story of Brzezinski awakened by that usually metaphorical 3 a.m. phone call that had become suddenly very literal contains the history and the mystery of declassified documents. One more thing to think about. Most of the highest drama in these stories that I've told and will tell can be found in popular retellings, from 10-minute mini-histories on YouTube to popular literature like Eric Schlosser's 2013 Command and Control which makes a business out of reciting the shock value of nuclear near-misses. I'm going to tell a few of the same stories, and some others, and get as close as I can to the primary sources and earliest investigations. But what is most important, most relevant to our world today, about each of these incidents is often left out, because it isn't the dramatic culmination of a near-miss. It's that they were near misses because the human element worked as it was supposed to. 
in the face of failures in the system and ghosts in the machine. In that way, the Cold War Vault will bring you something new to think about. So let's start as near to the beginning of this tale as we can, in the United States around 1966. Nineteen sixty six was the year that the Cheyenne Mountain facility was completed and became fully operational. As listeners to the vault, you surely know the massive underground facility in the Granite Peak in Colorado. Since its beginning, the facility has been home to NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, staffed by US and Canadian personnel and tasked with monitoring the skies for inbound missiles and suspicious aircraft, and once a year, tracking the global movements of Santa Claus. Cheyenne Mountain was meant to be a nerve center, collating data from sensor systems around the world and in outer space. To accomplish the task, a great deal of human input was required. In fact, the system wasn't completely automated until 1979, which is, of course, when the trouble really started. It takes big systems to make big mistakes, though I will happily go over a few precursor incidents that should have given everyone at NORAD pause. One of the most important data inputs for the system during this time was the Ballistic Missile Early Warning System, BMUs. Three widely separated radar stations in Alaska, Greenland, and the UK. Another essential piece of the network was the Defense Support Program, a satellite-based infrared detecting system that could identify Soviet missile launches and almost doubled the warning time of the BMUs, around 30 minutes. Which still isn't great if you are asleep in the White House residence, and your national security advisor is taking his time in calling you. On the 30th of September, 1960, the BMUs site at Thule in Greenland came online. It was a major step toward being able to detect Soviet missiles inbound because it had a very wide range of detection, 160 degrees sweeping the entire far north. Within a week of operations, on the 5th of October 1960, the Thule BMUs detected its first Soviet attack. Intercontinental ballistic missiles were inbound. Oddly, the trajectories of the missile barrage confounded the computer. Today, the records of the incident don't quite describe why the computer couldn't handle the calculations, but a little common sense will tell you it's because the missiles seemed to be hanging impossibly in the sky. What the weak-old radar system in Greenland had detected was the moon rising over Norway.
The radar echoes from the surface of the moon looked to those purpose-built computers in 1960 like a thousand missiles. To their credit, both NORAD and the Strategic Air Command saw the strange behavior of the barrage, took note of the fact that there were no calculated impact points, and likely also looked at the brand new system with a little incredulity, and dismissed the warning as a false positive. New systems were implemented to rule out the moon as a catalyst for Armageddon. This is a very early example of defense technology working against its own purpose, to detect and defend. But those examples kept coming any time a new layer of technology was introduced. A memo summarizing the discussion of a presidential visit to the Pentagon by Jimmy Carter in March 1978 gives a rare summary of the incidents the military saw fit to catalog. Here is some arcane information to add to your cocktail party discussions. Three alarm levels are defined, alarm level three being the lowest state of alarm. Such an accidental conspiracy of false data was calculated to occur about once a year. But in general, nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about largely because of that human element in the system. Alarm level two represented a greater likelihood of an actual attack, but that should happen statistically only once every 10 years. Alarm level one was the highest state of alarm and certainly, almost certainly, caused by an actual missile attack. But a false alarm rate should be less than once every 25 years. And that's reassuring because that means that from the activation of the BMUs to the end of the Cold War, accidental global thermonuclear war should only have happened about once. But let's look at this document and what incidents were revealed to the president at the Pentagon that day. 5 October 1960, cause, the moon, alarm level 3, and the system worked as it should have. Humans looked at the data and called off the alarm. 3 November 1964, cause, computer software, alarm level 3. 20 March 1966, cause, multiple satellites, alarm level 3. 18 March 1975, cause personnel error, alarm level one. Hmm. Alarm level one, that's fairly serious. Well, I can also tell you, it's one of the most interesting mysteries I've come across in this topic. And I challenge you listeners to go figure it out. The only reference to the incident is in the 1978 memo of the president's Pentagon visit. And the only clue might be, and it only might, be in a document called A Brief History of NORAD from 2013 that indicates in a very sparse timeline that on March 17th, 
the day before. The 440L over-the-horizon forward scatter radar system designed to look at disturbances in the ionosphere was shut down in advance of decommissioning. That may be a clue, and it may not. It's never mentioned again. It is a real Cold War mystery of the kind that just do not usually pop up, especially after years of attention and research into topics as sensational as nuclear close calls and near misses. On the 28th of August, a far less serious alarm level 3 was triggered by the misidentification of two nearly simultaneous U.S. Polaris missile launches. One wonders how the incident happened, as the missiles were launched from Cape Canaveral in Florida and detected by the infrared satellite sensor system of the Defense Support Program. 13 December 1976, cause computer hardware, alarm level 1. Again, the alarm level, statistically determined to be expected less than once every 25 years, had been triggered twice in two. And though we know it was a computer hardware error in the Defense Support Program system, the incident isn't reported in any of the other common lists of close calls and false alarms. I think this is a shame. Because though the biggest mishaps were yet to come, these six instances between 1960 and 1976 lay a foundation for understanding the trend of using technological solutions, primitive computer solutions, for gaining sometimes only additional moments of advantage, and not being fully aware of all the ways that those new technologies could and would fail. Consider this for a moment. In the same time period, custom-built computers were taking NASA to the moon. Computers with a failure mode of three dead astronauts and national embarrassment. There was nothing additionally special or safe about the NORAD computers. But of course, there was a failure mode of World War III. In these instances, even with the level one alarms, the human element did stop the cascade of warnings and responses. In each case, the commander-in-chief of NORAD assessed no confidence in the alarms, and each of the individual crises just ended. And in most of these cases, ended with minimal enough drama that they seem to have fallen by the wayside in the historical narrative of such mishaps. Details are sparse. But it was only a matter of time before one of these incidents, or accidents, or possible near misses, made it into the national and global media, as one finally did during the eight-minute crisis of November 1979. But wait. Let me back up here and really explain the context of the near disasters that are about to happen. Because it's worse than it seems, I promise you that. And it came of all the low-hanging criticisms usually leveled at bureaucracy. The ignorance and avarice of its functionaries. Knowing the price of a mistake, how was it, or is it, possible 
to sleep at night when the fate of the world rests in the hands of the least qualified to make such judgments. And here, of course, I mean politicians. Let me brief you on the history of the situation, not as I might brief Congress, which would be closer to the gentle tones with which I might speak to a puppy or a child, but as I might speak to educated and intellectually curious adults. Again, thank you all for being here. Let me explain program 427M. Sometime after the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, it became clear that a centralized command and control system was needed. Not just for nuclear forces, but for all forces. The worldwide military command and control system was born. When NORAD's facility under Cheyenne Mountain came online in 1966, it was an essential piece of this system, a node in a global network. Vast amounts of data from sensors all over the world flowed into the NORAD nerve center. And as the mission started to shift from the atmospheric threats of the 1950s and 60s to the space-based threats of the late 60s and 70s, it was clear that a massive computer system would be required to process the data and help commanders make sense of it. So computers were purchased and deployed. But the system wasn't future-proofed. It wasn't even present-proofed. From the day it went online, it was outdated. It was born obsolete. The first computer systems they used for the worldwide command and control system the 425L Command and Control and the 496L Space Track simply didn't have the necessary computing power. In December 1968, a new Department of Defense effort to find better computers began. The program to update the computers was designated 427M. There were two conditions laid down as law by the Secretary of Defense, Melvin Laird, First was that the management of the program would be consolidated with the Electronic Systems Division of the Air Force's Systems Command. Okay, fine. That actually seems to be a solid managerial decision. That division was already in charge of the worldwide military command and control system. The second condition was that NORAD would have to use the hardware and software already being procured for the WWMCCS. That, of course, was not a solid managerial decision. The whole system was supposed to accomplish three things. These were integrated into three system segments. First, the NORAD computer system. This is the system segment that does all of the things you'd expect to come from Cheyenne Mountain. Missile warning data, nuclear detonation reports, weapons and system sensor status, aircraft surveillance and warning reports, Santa's sleigh, and anything else that would combine to generate the global threat assessment, minute to minute. 
second was the system segment that offered NORAD the much popularized and always exaggerated contents of the big board. This was the system that detected, tracked, and cataloged any objects launched into space. The system followed them from launch into space and then on to their final orbital decay, generating predictions on likely impacts. This worked for NASA satellites as well as for Soviet ICBMs. The last was the communications system segment, a complex network that would semi-intelligently maintain constant communication between nodes and issue warnings to U.S. command centers. Like the National Military Command Center, the Alternate National Military Command Center, and the National Emergency Airborne Command Post, among others. The new computers to handle these jobs were installed in 1972. And as you might be able to guess, the already obsolete systems didn't have the computing power to do their jobs. Stopgap measures, a lot of very expensive band-aids, were authorized, but every patch Hardware and software just increased complexity and problems with compatibility and reliability. The entire system relied on the Honeywell 6000 series computers. Honeywell had been awarded the fixed price, fixed quantity contract for 35 computers for $46 million which was suspiciously low, and even more suspiciously, exactly the Pentagon's original target price for a good deal, to the penny. There were reasons for this. First, Honeywell took a loss on the computers to get in on the ground floor, as it were. Then, they would make their real money on upgrades and fixes for decades to come. Second, the financial hit was made a lot easier by the fact that they sold the Department of Defense Honeywell 6000 series computers. These had been produced in May 1964 and were serviceable business computers. But that's all they were. Let me put that into context. Installation of the new Global Command and Control Network computers began in March 1972 at this Strategic Air Command headquarters and was finished by December 1973. The Department of Defense had succeeded in creating a global network of computers that were originally designed to tabulate business concerns at the end of the day, not collate real-time data on which the security of the world rested. And they were nine years out of date. But NORAD had no choice. It was locked into a cycle of escalating hardware complexity, escalating software complexity, decreasing general reliability, and ballooning expenses to keep the wrong computers working on the ever more difficult mission of continental defense. The benchmarks were just not being met. The agreed-upon stages of advanced computer integration were not attainable by the Honeywell 6000s. 
By 1977, there were 49 programming and modification requests outstanding at NORAD. All 49 were tagged as essential for Cheyenne Mountain to do its fundamental job. It became increasingly clear that the realities of the demands on the computers were outpacing the ability of Honeywell and other technical entities to bring the systems up to the expected level. That level was called the Initial Operational Capability. It was the expected level of functionality at the launch of the system. It was clear that level could not possibly be reached. And so NORAD did something that, well, was both necessary and absurd. It said that the new technology was online, that the command and control system was working, and they declared victory over the project. The term initial operational capability was changed to equivalent operational capability, which was achieved in September 1979. Equivalent to what, you might ask? Equivalent to what the North American Aerospace Defense Command had been running prior to the Honeywell contract back in the 1960s. After all of that spending and all of those years, equivalency had been achieved. Which makes sense, because the new systems were now all based on the Honeywell 6000s from 1964. Now, 15-year-old computers in a world in which the Apple II had already been in American homes for two years. And that's where we find ourselves when the real trouble starts. Next time on the Cold War Vault. Thank you so much for listening to the Cold War Vault and for having patience during this hiatus. If you want to know more about this or any of the topics on the Vault, consider joining Patreon, where you'll have access to all of the declassified source materials that make up these shows. So, the next time your outdated PC gives you the blue screen of death, take cover immediately. Until next time. <laughs>